This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Well, first they came for the ethics professors, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't an ethics professor. What am I talking about? I'm talking about vaccine tyranny, of course. I got to bring you up to speed on a couple of stories here. There is a doctor by the name of Aaron Cariotti, who is the director of medical ethics at the University of California, Irvine. He has filed suit challenging the constitutionality of that school's vaccine mandate. And his argument has to do with the fact that people who have had COVID and recovered have a stronger defense against the future infection of COVID-19 than they would if they just had the vaccine. In other words, he's arguing for natural immunity, which, by the way, is something that even Pfizer's employees, the scientists working for Pfizer, admitted on undercover videos to Project Veritas just a few days ago. So what's the latest? The school has placed the director of medical ethics on investigatory leave after he challenged the constitutionality of the vaccine mandate. It's incredible. The, the, the ethics guy is getting it. It's amazing. In this suit in federal court that he filed, it says natural immunity following COVID infection is equal to, indeed superior to, vaccine-mediated immunity, thus forcing those with natural immunity to be vaccinated introduces unnecessary risks without commensurate benefits, either to individuals or to the population as a whole, and violates their equal protection rights guaranteed under the Constitution's 14th Amendment. And I think he's spot on about that. How does the government have the right to force you to be injected with any kind of substance? They don't. They don't. You cannot force people to put a substance into their bodies. This is the stuff of Nazi Germany. If you're going to take it as far as they did, it's a similar ideal. We're going to do what you don't want to do, and we're going to force you to do it, even if it's not scientific. It's extremely terrifying what is going on here. Now, I want to play for you Something that President Biden said at you know one of his confusing news conferences just a few days ago, because you got to listen to the narrative that's going on out there. I know you hear it, but you got to listen to what he said here. Here he is demonizing the unvaccinated. And how much do you think this affects the way that Americans are divided on this? Listen to cut three. The fact is, this has been a pandemic of the unvaccinated, unvaccinated, the unvaccinated overcrowd our hospitals overrunning emergency rooms and intensive care units. The unvaccinated patients are, are leaving no room for someone with a heart attack or in need of a cancer operation, and so much more because they can't get into the ICU, they can't get into the operating rooms. The unvaccinated also put our economy at risk because people are reluctant to go out and think about this. Even in places where there is no restriction on going to restaurants and gyms and movie theaters, people are not going. And anywhere near them is because they're worried they're going to get sick. 
All right. I want to point out a couple of quick things here. When you start demonizing the unvaccinated the way that this administration has worked hard to do, you're going to divide Americans. You're going to move more and more in a totalitarian direction. This whole idea that COVID-19 is a pandemic of the unvaccinated is not actually true. And there's a great piece over at the Heartland Institute about this, because on Friday, the 17th of September, the CDC published a study refuting the idea that COVID-19 is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Contrary to some of the assertions in the media and from Fauci that fully vaccinated people comprise only 1% of those being hospitalized hospitalized or killed by COVID-19. The study found 13% of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 had been fully vaccinated. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because the authors excluded from their study a large group of hospitalized COVID-19 patients, the bulk of whom were likely vaccinated. About half of the omitted group and 27% of the COVID-19 patients in these hospitals were people with immunocompromising conditions like cancer, HIV, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, etc., So, first of all, spreading this nonsense that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated is not helpful, but they're doing it on purpose. That's the worst part of it. And now you have people who are desperately needed in hospitals who are being fired because they won't take the vaccine. First of all, if you have people in the health profession who aren't taking the vaccine, wouldn't that raise some red flags in your mind? Hey, wait a minute. If everything is on the up and up here, why aren't they all racing to get the vaccine? Lots of questions. But also, whatever happened to the mobile field hospitals? You remember that? Everything was all freaked out in March of 2020. And President Trump rushed to say in New York City, there's going to be overflow of hospitals. Let's set up the field hospitals. Remember the field hospitals? President Trump was all for that. You had Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse setting up a field hospital in New York. And it ended up not being needed. How come the Democrats can't get field hospitals set up in order to take care of the unvaccinated? You know why and I know why. It's incredible. But here is probably the dumbest take. Listen to what he said here. This is cut four. More people are getting vaccinated. More lives are being saved. Let's be clear. When you see headlines and reports of mass firings and hundreds of people losing their jobs, look at the bigger story. I've spoken with Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines, who's here today. United went from 59% of their employees to 99% of their employees in less than two months after implementing the requirement. 99%. Well, first of all, you can talk about the fact that those who are not vaccinated lost their jobs. You can talk about that for a while. But the bigger issue is you have a president who is minimizing the fact that you have all these people losing their jobs. He doesn't care. I mean, how much louder can he say it without actually coming out and saying it? Ah, you know, people losing their jobs. But look at all the people who are getting vaccinated. Yeah, you're not going to lose your job, are you? You're the I wish you would, but you're still in the office because they won't get rid of you. It's incredible how callous and heartless this man is putting this garbage on the American people against the Constitution and against all compassion for human beings. It's just it it blows my mind. I want to play another cut here, though, when we're talking about Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who is fighting now and God bless him for doing it in this lawsuit against the University of California, Irvine, over the vaccine mandates. It's reminiscent, as Zero Hedge points out, to this situation with this Canadian ethics professor by the name of Dr. Julie Panessi. She was at Huron College at the University of Western Ontario, and she got fired for not taking the vaccine also and made a video about it. Listen to cut one. 
My employer has just mandated that I must get a vaccine for COVID-19. If I want to keep working at my job as a professor, I have to take this vaccine. Here's my conundrum. My school employs me to be an authority on the subject of ethics. I hold a PhD in ethics and ancient philosophy. And I'm here to tell you it's ethically wrong to coerce someone to take a vaccine. If it happens to you, you don't have to do it. If you don't want a COVID vaccine, don't take one. End of discussion. It's your own business. But that is not the approach of the University of Western Ontario, which has suddenly required that I be vaccinated immediately or not report for work. So with the school year beginning in a few days, I am facing imminent dismissal after 20 years on the job because I will not submit to having an experimental vaccine injected into my body. It's crazy. One more cut from her video. This is cut too. As a professor, I don't have to watch the news to find out if the COVID vaccines are safe. I read medical journals and I consult my colleagues who are professors of science and medicine. I've learned from doctors that there are serious questions about how safe these vaccines really are. There are questions about how well they work. Nobody's promising that I won't get COVID or transmit COVID if I get the vaccine. But ultimately, none of that matters to me because I'm a professor of ethics and I'm a Canadian. I'm entitled to make choices about what does and does not enter my body, regardless of my reasons. If I'm allowed back into my university, it's my job to teach my students that this is wrong. Well, it is, but they ended up firing her. After 20 years as an ethics professor, think of all the work that goes into getting your PhD and preparing for a career in academia. These people are heroes. I'm telling you, we're going to look back on these people as being heroes for holding the line, for saying, I'm not doing it because it's wrong. And what's really scary is even if you're vaccinated, you ought to be supporting these people. Because if the government can tyrannize you into forced vaccines, what will they try next? You might want to broaden your horizons a little bit when you consider all of the problems involved in this kind of totalitarianism. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Over 169,000 babies saved and more than 51,000 commitments to Christ through the Ministry of Preborn as they celebrate 15 years of saving babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. This is a reflection of God's heart as the father to the fatherless to be able to look across America and see this tragedy, this Holocaust of abortion, and know that people like you are doing something about it. It's one thing to say that we're against abortion, but it's really another to take action. Will you join Preborn in providing hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel in action across America? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help to rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? 
Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. So glad you're with us. I want to play a little catch up on good old plagiarist Ed Litton, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, he is. He's a sermon stealer. He's a deceiver. And he's admitted lying about his sermon preparation time on video. So I'm not making charges that aren't provable. It's it's crazy to me that this man is still in office and that all of his corrupt pals in the SBC are just yawning about it. Eh, well, you know, who cares? Who cares if he steals sermons? He's the perfect guy to be at the head of the Southern Baptist Convention. Why? Well, look at what the Southern Baptist Convention is now slowly becoming. It's all woke. It's all woke. There was a story just a few days ago in the Christian Post about his appearance at a racial reconciliation event This was called Shrink the Divide. It's a project of the Pledge Group, which is a movement of leaders from different racial, denominational and vocational backgrounds who want to shrink the racial divide in the Mobile, Alabama area. One of the things that Ed Litton was quoted as saying is that indifference is killing us. And in order to overcome racial prejudice, we ought to go and work at it. Now, that sounds nice. But who's indifferent to racial reconciliation? I mean, how much more? It's kind of like being accused of something. Well, it's exactly like this. Being accused of doing something that you didn't actually do and feeling like you always have to play defense. That gets exhausting after a while. When someone comes along and tells you your deepest, darkest thoughts, which don't exist, and you're having to say, no, that's not actually true. And the person says, no, it's so deep that you won't acknowledge it. How in the world do you have conversations with people like this? You can't. And they know that you can't. So when you use these broad terms, for example, like they did so much during the the height of the BLM movement last year. Where are those people gone, by the way? They've disappeared after they were exposed to having these million dollar mansions with the money that people gave to them to racially reconcile people. But it was all about you're white supremacists and you're all racists because you're white and it's systemic. And even if you flog yourself and do penance and whatever it is you have to do these days, you're still guilty and you can't get rid of it. And so you get some of these people who buy into it, who just, huh, they're crying and they're flogging themselves emotionally. And, oh, no, I'm horrible. I'm horrible. I'm horrible. I'm horrible. Where is this all going? Well, I did a little bit of digging into this pledge group. This pledge group is this, you know, some of these things are fine and they're good. When, when you talk about racial reconciliation and obviously in heaven, there will be people from every tribe and every nation, every race, every ethnicity. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and by the way, it's not just whites and blacks. It's also, you know, Latinos and Asians and Native Americans and all the right. I mean, everybody on earth who is a Christian, Arabs are going to be in heaven. We're going to be one body of Christ. Finally, the church triumphant. It's going to be awesome. We want that to be a reality 
here on earth insofar as it's possible to be unified through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all in favor of that. But listen to what the pledge group says. They have a document on their website about actionable ideas for churches and shrinking the divide, seek God's guidance. And they have some things that sound fine, you know, look at the views in your congregation on ethnic issues and and respond biblically to different viewpoints. One of the things they advise these churches to do is preach about the pledge and the underlying issues. Well, the pledge that they have here is a three-point thing where they you have to pledge. In my daily context, I will recognize and engage with persons of other races, speaking a warm greeting to them as fellow travelers on the journey of life. Well, aren't most Christians doing this? In my prayers, I will pray regularly for racial unity and harmony and for spiritual revival in our shared local communities and nation and proactively foster and deepen relationships across racial and socioeconomic, ethnic and denominational lines. Okay, fine. But you know what? The, the, the purpose of the church, this is getting into social justice now. When you're going to a church, you have a faith statement, you have a doctrinal statement. In particular churches, you will have a confession of faith. You might have some kind of statement of faith that's historic to your particular Christian tradition. Now they're introducing pledges that you have to make to racial unity. Okay, if you want to be the PCUSA, go for it. But that didn't end well for them. So what else do they have as actionable ideas? Acknowledge that racism is at its core a spiritual issue. But of course, this assumes your congregation is full of racists. Admit that human willpower and do good actions alone are insufficient to fully resolve our ethnicity prejudices and issues by offering a Christ-centered response. You can't just have a human willpower and do good actions to fully resolve ethnicity. So nothing you want and nothing you do is going to resolve prejudice. Uh, That's critical race theory. Plan to distribute to your church the cards with a pledge and its three commitments. What else do they say? They talk about a book they recommend. One of the books they recommend is called Multi-Ethnic Conversations by a guy named Mark DeMoz. He's a pastor in Arkansas. He is also the head of this Mosaics Global Network. Now, what is that? Mosaics Global Network. It gets really weird, guys, when you start digging into some of this. They have, for example, is their vision. They want to see 20% of churches reach 20% diversity by 2020. And they say that they've achieved it. Catholic and evangelical. Okay. Then they say they want 20% diversity in mainline churches, et cetera, et cetera. Then they say they want to establish equitable systems of responsible authority, leadership, governance, and accountability within the congregation. Equitable? What does that mean? They want to embrace the tension of sound theological reflection and applicational relevance in an increasingly complex and intersectional society for the sake of the gospel. What are we talking about here? Social justice. Social justice warriors on the move. And Ed Litton is down with it. Here's part of what he had to say at this conference. This is Cut 5. People come up and say, congratulations. I say, well, I'll also accept condolences. Uh, I found myself as the president of a, an organization, a group of people, a churches. It's really not a group or a minute. It's not a denomination. It, it is a collection of almost 50,000 churches, somewhere between 16, 18 million people who love the Lord, worship the Lord. And I think it's God's sense of humor that he put me at this place for this moment. At our last convention, uh, uh, a great man in our denomination stood up and cast a great vision. Problem was, it wasn't done. The greatest thing about Southern Baptist in my heart and mind is this. We are the largest deliberative body in the world. We only meet two days a year. And anybody can change the course and direction of the convention. 
Wow. He really said a mouthful there. Anybody can change the course of the convention and they're doing it, folks. If you're a Southern Baptist, they're doing it because there's Ed Litton and God must have a sense of humor for putting him here. No, God would want you to resign because you're not fit for the ministry, much less the position of president of the denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention. What is that all about? The Southern Baptist Convention is not a denomination. Of course it is. Oh, yes, we know that there is local church autonomy in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's still a denomination. And he'll accept condolences for being the president. What, what is this talk? What is this? This is the guy who's the head of the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, you guys... You got to get him to resign for character reasons, or you're going to get a lot more like this. Now, I went back to the 2020 Shrink the Divide event just out of curiosity to see some of what was discussed. And they had another speaker called Marshall Blaylock. He is a pastor, I guess, senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Charleston. And this is a very, very old church. I think they said it was the oldest Southern Baptist church in the country. He used the parable of the Good Samaritan to basically bash white Christians for subtly subtly not loving their black neighbors. This is bizarre. Listen to cut six. It's time to ask a question. Who are we in the story? The priest and the Levite walked by. I think it's interesting. Jesus used religious people in the story because they were doing good religious things. But when the man was beaten and robbed on the side of the road, They could say, we like justice, we're all for it. We like the concept of mercy, we're all for it. And they could say, I've done no harm to this man. I'm not at fault here. They could say, as often I hear in my own experience, I'm not prejudiced, I'm not racist, I don't hate black people, but it's much more subtle than that. When you're the priest and the Levite, you just walk by. What is he even talking about? That's the, the Good Samaritan parable has to do with the fact that this man was beaten up by the side of the road and no one would help him. Are you really trying to insinuate that somebody who is hurt, who might be of a different race, would not be someone that white Christians would help if there was someone who is black who is hurt on this? Because that's the actual analogy. This is being used to make you feel guilty. And by the way, there was a quote that they excerpted at Shrink the Divide online. And they have a quote from Marshall Blaylock. This is what he said. Systematic injustice, white supremacy, racism. How many have to die on these altars? A truncated gospel without biblical social justice catalyzes evil. This is the group supported by the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And by the way, Ed Litton's church hosted this same event back in 2018. And our favorite Democrat operative Russell Moore spoke there in 2018 and I thought it would be interesting for you to hear the same kind of stuff coming out of his mouth just a few years ago. Listen to this wonderful quote from Russell Moore, cut seven. And there are three questions that could not be more relevant in the kind of American society that we are in right now that is riddled with division, riddled with racism, riddled with injustice, riddled often with hatred for one another, and often infected with a kind of of racism and a kind of racial animosity that is more subtle than it would have been at other points in American history, which means it could be even more dangerous. 
What would you rather have? A cancer that you know about or a cancer that is undetectable because it's hidden? So in other words, you just have to assume Russell Moore is right when he says there is a subtle racism going on that people won't admit to. And it's even more dangerous than out and out racism. That's nonsense. How do you know anybody has cancer at all? You have to run some tests, don't you, in order to confirm a cancer diagnosis? You don't say, oh, well, you don't have a sound cancer diagnosis. But you know what? You have a subtle cancer diagnosis, which makes it even more deadly. What? It makes no sense. We'll be back. Stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Did you know that public school enrollment numbers this fall have declined by 1.5 million students? Parents are either putting their kids into private schools or homeschooling, and now the private schools in particular are experiencing unprecedented growth. But why is this all occurring? As my next guest says, not only were parents dissatisfied with how the schools navigated the pandemic, but many were especially troubled by witnessing teachers promoting political agendas and radical ideologies rather than actually teaching things like reading, writing, and arithmetic. So we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Carrie Ingram, Director and Fellow of the Discovery Institute's American Center for Transforming Education. Her piece at the American Spectator is called Public School Tactics Feed Private School Enrollment. So good to have you here, Carrie. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, this is a big number. One and a half million students exited the public education system. Is that a one-year record for enrollment withdrawal from public schools? I mean, how much of a uh, a record is that? It sounds like it would be one, but what what do you know about that? Well, it was quite astonishing to see a year prior in the fall of 2020, three million students were missing from public schools. Mm. Now, the reason for that was several students were still enrolled, but they simply weren't logging on to these remote classes that were low quality, they weren't engaging, and there's no accountability for students when they were at home. Um, or um, many students, you know, simply were um, just disengaged because when they saw from March all the way into the fall, you know, this wasn't a serious academics. It was almost a joke of what was happening. You know, they would sit through sessions where kids were on their cell phones during the Zoom calls, cracking jokes. Hmm. Teachers were talking about political agendas, things that didn't have to do with their core academic subjects, and students checked out. So in the fall of 2020, 3 million were missing. Wow. Now this fall, when doors opened, it stabilized, um, where just 1.5 million didn't hmm. show up, but still, to your point, that is a record number um, for public school enrollment to decline at 3% mm. across the nation in a single year alone. That is incredible. Um, that trend is 
going to continue if public schools continue to push these agendas that really don't have a place in the classroom. They're failing our students. 71% of students exit their 13 years of K-12 public education without achieving the basic proficiencies needed in life. Wow. uh, 71%, that's across the board in America? Yes, that's on average. If you look at statistics from the nation's report card, which is the leading credible source, you've got students um, looking at all core subjects, the seven core subjects ranging from civics, geography, math, reading, science, history and writing, 71% fail to graduate with basic knowledge in those skills. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, now, when we're going back to the time of the pandemic, on that aspect of things, there were a lot of parents who were very concerned about sending their kids to school initially, but then they said, well, wait a minute. Now, we shouldn't leave school closed the rest of the year. There was a lot of drama in that regard. A lot of parents said, we want in-person learning. This is harming the kids. They're depressed. They're, you know, and, and all the publicity that went along with the effects on kids from not being in schools. This was, it seems, a point at which the private schools had an advantage. What can you tell us about that? Because they were more determined, it seems, overall to have in-person learning. And I'm wondering what kind of difference that made. Yeah, well, if you turn back the calendar and look at when COVID rocked our world in January, February, and even early March of 2020, everything shut down. The world, in essence, stopped. All schools, public, private, they shut down. But as we had more information and we learned about COVID, research was gathered, there was two different viewpoints that came out. One was private schools that said, Well, now we have the timeline from February to May, June with our schools closed. We also have a lot more science, a lot more information about this virus now. Let's see what our families want. And so over the summer, they pulled their parents. They had meetings with faculty and staff to get creative and say, how can we make this work? Because our parents, by majority, 95% want in-person learning. So how can we also serve that 5% highly responsive? You know, they're recognizing that these parents, they're their paying customers. They want to serve them. And they also took into consideration what's in the best interest of their students because they saw what that remote learning had done to student engagement, motivation, also student well-being, their mental health over those few months that they were closed. So they opened up. Well, in stark contrast, you had public schools driven by these teacher union agendas not even consider what's best for students, what parents wanted. They said, what's best for our teacher members? Let's see how that we can hold out, keep our doors shut, fail to serve our students to get a host of inappropriate demands met, whether it was increased pay Um, or things far beyond their scope of their members, things like putting moratoriums on charter schools, defunding the police, Mm. Medicare for all. Those were the holdouts to reopen their classrooms and serve these students that desperately needed the supervision, the academic instruction, and also just the community for their development. Yeah, 
It was a travesty. And, you know, it's ironic because when you're talking about private schools being more responsive to parents who are paying customers, parents are paying customers to the public schools, too. But the school boards there in some cases, and especially the NEA and other sorts of uh, liberal organizations that are involved in these kinds of decisions, they don't look at parents that way. We have the Attorney General Merrick Garland unleashing the FBI on parents simply for now coming before their school boards and saying, we don't want CR. Critical race theory taught in public schools. What a difference in the attitude it would seem between private school officials versus public school. Yeah, you know, the longer that public schools kept their doors shut and had this remote online learning, these Zoom sessions coming into homes, parents had a front row window really for the first time to see what was being taught in the classroom, how the teacher was interacting with their students, you know, what was the tone. What was the level of respect among the other students? And parents were shocked. I mean, the indoctrination that was going on on these political issues had nothing to do with academics. We're consuming so much of that precious, limited instruction time. So they became very dissatisfied. Um, The outrage came once they saw that, you know, agendas of changing gender, the redefinition, encouraging students as young as age five to self-select their gender. I mean, just breeding confusion in children. You know, there's no wonder mental health is on the rise among children and teenagers when they're taught from such a young age to question their very basic identity. Right. You know, then we saw, to your point, critical race theory. You know, instead of spending that summer and the fall figuring out how can we open our classrooms, how can we serve families, Teacher unions were paying high dollar, ridiculous amounts of money to the CRT trainers to provide professional development. That's what they called it to teachers about critical race theory instead of, hey, let's talk about technology. How can we make remote learning better if we're not going to open our classrooms? How do we catch these students up? You know, the focus was really to indoctrinate the teachers on CRT, some woke academic redefining things like equity to no longer mean equal opportunity, but forcing these equal outcomes at the expense of really investing in teachers, the skills developments they needed to educate kids effectively. And in turn, those teachers um, started passing that on into what they were teaching into students at indoctrination and uh, parents are speaking up and, Um, hats off to those parents who are getting involved and are taking a stand. We need more parents like that to say enough is enough. You know, you're not only not educating my child in the core things that we expect on an academic standpoint, but you're really harming them. You're bringing in divisive ideologies, separating students based upon their outward appearance, their race, which is the opposite of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., so courageously for in our country. Of course. We're going to pause for a short break. We'll come back with Dr. Kara Ingram from the Discovery Institute talking about how public school tactics are feeding private school enrollment. Back in a moment on Janet Meffer Today.
over 169,000 babies saved and more than 51,000 commitments to Christ through the Ministry of Preborn as they celebrate 15 years of saving babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. This is a reflection of God's heart as the father to the fatherless to be able to look across America and see this tragedy, this holocaust of abortion, and know that people like you are doing something about it. It's one thing to say that we're against abortion, but it's really another to take action. Will you join Preborn in providing hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel in action across America? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help to rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold, and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Well, it's very interesting to see what is happening as our public school system becomes ever more radicalized during the pandemic. As we know, an awful lot of parents started to get that first look at what their kids are being taught in the classroom, if you can call it teaching rather than indoctrination, where you had the gender selection, LGBT activist nonsense. You had the critical race theory nonsense. A lot of parents are waking up and it's interesting to see how many of them now are pulling their kids out of public schools and either homeschooling them or putting them into private schools. This is interesting. Dr. Carrie Ingram with us from the Discovery Institute's American Center for Transforming Education. Carrie, when you're looking at this trend of a lot of these parents putting their kids in private schools, it's uh, it's interesting that you note in your piece at, at The Spectator that you had a trend where the private schools were losing families because a lot of people were finding it more difficult to pay the tuition, etc., what is the situation like now for private schools in wake of the fact that a lot of parents are saying, I, I don't trust the public schools anymore? Well, private schools have received this tremendous gift of these students after years and even a few decades of a steady enrollment decline for rising tuition prices. You know, families in the middle class were just being pushed out of being able to make it financially feasible. Um, you had economic recession period. You also had a decline in birth rate. And so many schools were getting to the point where they were having to scale back in their offerings, as well as others were shutting their doors. They just couldn't make it um, as a private school because they were losing the enrollment. Well, what they've seen uh, because of the response of public education to keep their doors shut and now 
with these radical teachings taking place is a huge influx of students are moving from public to private school. Parents are finding a way, um, as well as the avenues to promote school choice from a governmental standpoint are rapidly increasing. For example, prior to 2021, there was only five states in the U.S. that offered educational savings accounts. Those would be funds to help families really um, support private schools, home schools, any kind of educational expense they would need. Well, just so far in 2021, five other states have joined in. So now we have 10 states. To double in one year is very significant. Hmm. So parents are getting some avenues as well as more school vouchers, tax credit scholarships to help make better reality. But also on these private schools, when they've had a huge influx of students, they can adjust their budget and offer more tuition assistance. And so it's really been a win to open the avenue for private schools to be more viable options for families. Now, on the flip side, you look at the average tuition price across our country, and it's $11,000 per student per year, mm-hmm. and that's without any of the financial aid considered. And so we're also seeing an influx of parents pull their students from public school, not able to make the jump to private, but they're getting really creative. They're taking part in homeschool co-ops or micro schools, learning pods. They're finding a way because they've said enough is enough with these public schools. You know, the heart and mind of our child is so important that we want that to be in a nurturing, positive environment but also an environment where they're going to be stimulated academically and be prepared for life with those skills that they need. So they're finding ways. Well, that is encouraging. And you say in your piece that there is a long-term track record of private schools producing superior academic outcomes. I know that's been true as well for homeschoolers, Uh, but they spend less. So (laughs) that's a better deal overall. I think where parents get frustrated is they say, I don't have any choice with my tax dollars being forced into the public school system, even though I don't send my children there. I have to pay for that through my property taxes. Do you see any movements on the horizon more broadly than the examples you already gave to make that kind of progress on school choice? Do you think that school choice is just going to be that movement will be more fueled now? I do, absolutely. What we've seen um, as far as public support of school choice since April 2020, so pretty early on with COVID till now, is that the public support for school choice is up to 74%. That's Mm. unheard of. Yeah. And then when you look at public school parents, so the actual parents of these current students, it's at an all-time high of 80%. And most surprising would be the rise among Democrats. So Democrats' support of school choices increased to 70%. Wow. Um, And so that in itself, that kind of support has really laid the groundwork for moving forward school choice bills and opening up the avenues where the monopoly is eventually going to be broken down at these public schools. As of May 2021, 30 states put forth upwards of 50 total school choice bills to either create things like new private school vouchers, tax credit scholarships, or educational savings accounts, or to expand what's already in place. 
That is encouraging. That's really encouraging. Of course, the question becomes, what will the teachers unions do about this? Because already they get annoyed, for example, when you pull your child out of the public schools, then it affects their funding to the schools. And, you know, there's that whole fight. And plus, they have a lot of politicians in their back pocket. Do you see any signs of the teachers unions or the woke within the public school system and the administrations finding a political way to disrupt the exodus from the public schools, whether or not they put more regulations on private schools or they have all kinds of tricks up their sleeve. But do you expect there might be some kind of attempted crackdown to stop parents from getting their kids out of the public schools? Is there anything they really can do? Oh, I guarantee there's going to be pushback. There's going to be tactics. There's going to be avenues because the teacher unions are so closely joined to the Democratic Party because of how much money they give. Um, to the political campaign. And so there is a lot of leverage there. But at the same time, those Democratic uh, politicians, you know, they're voted into office by the public. And when you see that among Democrats in general, you know, not just parents, but the general population, that they've increased school choice up to 70%, it's going to be a different landscape going forward. Yes. So yes, why the tactics will be there the battle's going to rage on between the two. It's going to be at a new level. Um, time will tell. The more families that leave as that enrollment decreases from public schools, that dollar money tied to those students, that speaks, and that's going to put pressure on those teacher unions. Well, and you wonder if the move by Merrick Garland was fueled in part by these activists in the public school saying, you got to do something about these parents. You got to calm these parents down. They're stopping us from, you know, teaching the 1619 project and whatnot. But it, you really do wonder if they're overplaying their hand because, you know, when you're involving the Department of Justice on parents who simply don't want race baiting curriculum being taught to their kids, that to me speaks of a big political kind of scenario that has nothing to do with domestic terrorism. Everybody recognizes that. I would just say public schools are taking the extreme to a whole new level. They are. You know, some of these woke academics that they're teaching now, you know, it's open for interpretation what two plus two means, you know, it can mean five. (laughs) They're making it subjective. um, And parents are starting to say, hey, you know, that's my child. That's their future. You know, hands off. And we're going to see um, in the next several months and years, I think, the consequences of these radical ideas. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what transpires, as you say. Do you think, mentioning the landscape, Carrie, do you see the landscape of education changing for good in light of what's happened over the last year? Or do you see this as kind of temporary blip? It would seem that the change might be for good, given all of the support that we see in the polls for school choice. What do you think about that? Well, sadly, we're a very divided nation, and the divide is only becoming stronger. You know, you've got one camp that supports the slaughtering of pre-born babies. You've got another camp who fights for life and for justice for the unborn. I mean, you take any issue and that divide is just getting greater. You're right. Well, education is no different. And so while teacher unions and these public schools are doubling down on these radical teachings and really opening up core academic truths to interpretation, um, 
they're going to dig their heels in and go stronger. But at the same time, as people leave, there's going to be the other side that grows stronger as well. And that's encouraging. Yeah, that's really encouraging. And boy, parents definitely have to stand strong at a time like this. Dr. Carrie Ingram, Director and Fellow of the Discovery Institute's American Center for Transforming Education. Her piece at thespectator.org is Public School Tactics Feed Private School Enrollment. So good to have you with us, Carrie. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Janet. All right, you take care. And thanks again for being with us. And thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. It's great to have you here. Hope you'll join us next time and we'll see you then.